0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. First Timothy chapter three, this is verses one to seven. The saying is trustworthy. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you give weight to these words. Because these are not my words. These are your words and your instruction for the church for all time. And so, as it falls upon us, Lord, help us to live it out. We pray for godliness for each of us. As we see what a mature disciple in Christ looks like, we pray that we would all aspire to these qualities, but in particular, We pray that you call forth and appoint overseers in our church. And we pray as well for more deacons as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I will be preaching on deacons next week. But I want you to know being a deacon is not JV and being an elder is not varsity, okay? It's just this is the way that he takes it up in the text, okay? Uh, What we're talking about here is the church. And how the church should choose its leaders. The Apostle Paul gives these qualifications for leadership, and they're are in three different places in the New Testament. First Timothy three, Titus one, very similar list, and then we also have some other qualifications listed in first Peter five. And I would encourage you to read those passages and reflect upon those. But let's think back up for a minute. Because you, you know it's easy to forget what is the church? Why is the church important? I mean, the early church used to say, you know, if you'd have God as your father, then you must have the church as your mother. And the idea of the church is you need the church to nourish you, to care for you. And we need all these means of grace. And so when you think of the church, which of these six definitions would you put as the church? This is from the 1981 Webster's New World Dictionary. If you look up the word "church," definition number one: a building for public worship. Meet me over at the church. Is that what the Bible means by church? Definition number two: Public worship: a religious service. People come up after church and they say, after there you go, after church. they say, "I enjoyed church today." Is that the biblical definition of church? Number three, a particular sect or denomination of Christians. What church do you go to? Oh, I belong to the Presbyterian church. Okay, is that what we mean by the church? Definition number four, church government or its power as opposed to civil government. I believe in the separation of church and state. Definition number five, the profession of the clergy. What do you do for work? Oh, I work for the church. Definition number six, a group of worshipers. Ding, 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 ding. We have a winner. (laughs) We finally, when we get to definition number six, do we have what the Bible means by ecclesia? And ecclesia is the Greek word for called out people, called the church. And we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light to do what? to declare his praises, that once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. And so the church is ultimately a group of worshipers of local congregation gathering together, praising his name from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And so it's important as we look to this chapter that we remember that this is quite the opposite than the world standards, isn't it? I mean, just look at that list for a minute and tell me if this is how we think about how we would pick a CEO of a company or if how we would pick a politician to run for office is this how we operate first Timothy 3 1 to 7 because what's interesting here is all of the qualities are character qualities except for one under the elder category and it, an elder must be apt to teach And that doesn't mean that he needs to be a blazing, you know, group upfront teacher. It means he's able to refute heresy. He's able to teach sound doctrine. And some elders are great one-on-one, but they're not great in in a a classroom setting. That's okay. But the idea that's the only uh, gift or ability item that's listed, the rest are all character qualities. Well, the world chooses just the opposite way. You know, the world wants to know, you know about first of all i mean if you're going to you got to have a lot of money and a lot of gifts influence power popularity charisma you got to be good at social media these days but your personal life is off limits the two things you're not allowed to look into are you're not allowed to talk about my spouse or my marriage or my children well apostle paul says just the opposite. He even warns here in verse 11 when he talks about deacons' wives that they're not to be devils. That's the word for slanderers is diabolos. They're not to be mudslingers or character assassins. And so obviously that applies to elders' wives as well. So for Paul, as goes the leadership of the church, so goes the church. Francis Schaeffer wrote you know, in the 70s, popular writer. He said this about this chapter. I think it's important for us. He says, the church has no right to diminish these standards for the officers of the church, nor does it have a right to elevate any other as though they are then equal to which we are are commanded by God himself. These and only these stand as absolute, meaning we don't get to invent our standards for leaders. We don't pick, you know, which of these we're gonna choose and which we're not of these qualities and we don't get to add to it or take away from it. You know, I was at a church before I came here and the pastor at two different times tried to add something to implement on the elder board that we would all agree to that this would be a qualification for an elder. And one of those is that we would all be teetotalers, that we would never, ever touch alcohol. And the elders stood up to him because the passage says here, not a drunkard. And if you were to say, I mean, Jesus drank wine. And so to be a teetotaler was like, and some of them were, but they were like, you can't go beyond the Bible. And so he was shot down. And another time, he said that he really wanted the, the, the leader, the elders, to give a little more than the tithe. And so he, he wanted us all to give 12% if you're as a, as a uh, qualification to be an elder. And of course, the elders like, You're going beyond the Bible, and you can't do that. And so that got shot down. So um, it's important that we stick to the standards that God has given us. And so let me just remind you, you know, the reason Paul is writing here about elders and deacons is when the New Testament talks about leaders, when we think about leaders in the church, notice I'm using the word plural, elders, plural, not singular. It's not an elder you know, if you recall, I mean, some of these verses, you could re- finish them for me. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders. It's plural. Call the elders of the church, right? Um, when, when Paul was going back to Jerusalem and he came through Ephesus, he called for the Ephesian elders to come and meet with him. Plural. First Peter 5 begins with, I exhort the elders among you. And in Titus 1, Paul left Titus in Crete so that you might put, to, put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So it's always plural. There's, and the point of that is there's not one person who's in charge. That would be bad. So the elders are to feed and to lead And with respect to their age and their dignity, they're called elders, and that's the Greek word. That's where we become Presbyterian. It's the word presbyteros. But with respect to the nature of the task, they are called overseers. And that's the Greek word where we get the the word bishop or Episcopalian, because it's literally the Greek word episkopos, so overseers, the two Greek words. So the terms are used interchangeably in the Bible. And so Paul calls the elders of the church in Acts 20, and then he reminds them that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, bishops. And so the office of deacon then is created in Acts 6, as so Paul and the, and the elders and the apostles could focus on the ministry of word and prayer. So the church is to love both in word and in deed. And so the word ministry is primarily for the elders and the deed ministry is primarily with the deacons to lead in that. And so the deacons serve and they take off burdens of the elders so that they can focus on feeding and, and leading. And I, I hope some of you read the, the um, email I sent out yesterday just talking about some of the numerous things that Todd Raveslute has done in our church and so many things that our deacons do they do behind the scenes so that the elders can focus on word and prayer and there's been so many myriad of things that the deacons do it's a it's a hard job but they do their job because the the heart difference between an elder and a deacon is how they respond to god's word according to their gifts the heart of a deacon responds to the truth of god's word and says I want to serve very practically with my hands and my feet. What needs to be done? Let me go and do it. And the elders respond, because, you know, the deacon's heart is to, to see the gospel adorned with good works so that the gospel message is tangibly compelling. Whereas the heart of the elder has a heart to shepherd heart to teach and to instruct and their gifting is concerned with pure doctrine and good teaching and shepherding God's people to keep them away from wolves and false doctrine and things that would divide the body of Christ and they're very concerned about that and they're, they're given to prayer and to teaching. And so today we're just focusing on, on the uh, elders. Okay, so we've given a lot introduction here, okay? And so this begins with, uh, let's just kind of run through these real quickly. The different uh, qualifications. The first is, is the desire. This is really important. We've had a few people over the years that have come to the elder board and they've gone through the training and, they've, and, they, and then they come to the, meet with the elders and the elders want to know, one of the first things they want to know is, is the inward call. Do you desire the office? Do you want to be a deacon? Do you want to be an elder? Do you desire it? Because if that's the first thing he talks about here is there has to be some desire Okay, and so we've had a few times where people have come to the, to the elder board and they basically have looked to the elders to give them the inward call. And when that's happened, the elder board has always said no. Because if you don't desire the office then it's not on us to confirm that for you. Our job is to confirm the outward call, that we see the gifts, that we can see you doing this. It's been affirmed by the body. That's the outward call. But the inward call is you have to inwardly desire to do this and have a sense that this is where God is leading you to do this. And so one time in particular, we had somebody come, and they, they were just kind of burdened, and they said, well, I'm, I'm going to put it on the elders. You know, I'm not sure whether I should be a deacon or not. And, and the elders ended up saying, I think we should wait. And we're just not convinced yet that, that the calling is clear. And I, So I called him the next day. I was kind of in fear, like he was going to be disappointed. And he said to me, I am so relieved. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so relieved, you know. It's like it was confirming because he didn't really want to do it. Well, better to have fewer officers that are called than to have a lot of officers and some of them aren't called. That would be bad. And so the first thing is, is desire, okay? So the desire, this is a noble task, this is a good work, but we must examine our, our, our motives, okay? So the, so the question is, do you desire this noble task for the reasons that are to build up the church or to puff up self? You remember, Christ did not come to please himself, not to ourselves, O Lord, but to your name give glory. And so this noble task of desiring to be an elder or, sh- or shepherd is noble when it's done to serve Christ and not one's ego or agenda. And if you don't have the desire to do this, well maybe you're not called to the office but maybe it could also be that you might need to repent. I mean Jonah was called to love the Ninevites, wasn't he? But he didn't have the desire, he was lacking this desire but the problem was he needed to repent of his lack of love for other ethnicities and those outside of the covenant. And so, but if your desire, if someone comes to me, and and I've had this a few times over the years where they have what I would say is an overweening desire. They want the office too bad. And I've even heard it couched a few times, and I'm sure you probably have too, Pastor Tim, where they say, you know, I want to become a deacon or elder because I want to make some changes around here. (laughs) <laughs> man when you hear that man that's that is a buzzword and a half that's like uh let's let it, now the changes that you're wanting to make are they biblical changes or do you have an agenda to take the church in some direction where it, it's it looks like it's tra- you're trying to hijack the bus that's not good so if you want to do this why do you want to do this Second thing is, and it's interesting how this text begins and ends with this idea of reputation or being above reproach. So it, he starts with the list, an overseer must be above reproach in verse 2. And then it ends with, in verse 7, that he must be thought of, um, he must be well thought of by outsiders. And so there's, those are both ideas of Reputation. And the idea is that if somebody called you and asked for a reference on this person, can you give a glowing reference? Are they ab- so when we mean by above reproach, we don't mean that they're, they're, they're flawless, They've, you know, they, they walk on water. I mean, only Jesus has done that, so nobody could be qualified. But the idea is that if someone called and asked for a reference, and you know, I had somebody call just the other, other week, call me and ask for a reference for Mary Boyd to clean for them. I'm like I couldn't wait to call him back and to say you know absolutely you're not going to find anybody better you know she I have nothing you know nothing uh, negative to say about her yes and that's how it should be with an elder is that the idea is that there's something that says hold on a minute there's something I need you to know and you need to keep this in mind as you, as, as you weigh through and make your decision and you go in eyes wide open, but there's something I need to tell you. That's what we mean by somebody that has something that still needs to be worked out before they're above reproach. And so that would be a mark against them. Uh, this next point, I mean, and, and the reason for this is so much of the job of a shepherd is to be an example to the flock Right? Doesn't the Bible talk a lot about this? First Peter 5 says that, that elders are not to be domineering over those in your charge, but it being examples to the flock. The Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And Philippians 3.17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then he says about the leader's, in Hebrews, it says, Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So it's very important that you're above reproach. Now this next one, we could spend a whole sermon on, the husband of one wife. Well, what does Paul mean? And what does he not mean? Does he mean you can't be single? Because he says, you know, if people say, well, he says the husband of one wife, And the idea that if that was the case, then Jesus himself couldn't be an elder, nor the apostle Paul, so I don't think he's meaning that. Um, The idea here is if you are married, that you should be the husband of one wife, but even still, what does that mean? Well, I think certainly polygamy applies in that day in culture, there were still, in the Roman culture, uh, polygamy was still in effect and Christians were getting saved out of this Roman culture and some, had polygamous marriage. I think it means more than that, but I certainly doesn't mean less than that. And so the idea here is this still happens today. I had a friend and was working in Kenya with a particular tribe in Kenya where there was a lot of polygamy. And there were Christians that, you know, coming out of that and a guy has two wives. And, well, don't get rid of one of your wives, but sorry, you can't be an elder in the church. Um, So they continue to live with these two wives but he's not going to be able to serve as an an office of elder. Yet I think the text means more than that and I think this is what it means, is that you can't be guilty of marital unfaithfulness and be an elder. You have to be faithful to your wedding vows. You can't be a flirt, you can't be getting emotionally or physically involved with other women. You can't be having something scandalous where that's being brought, you're a one-woman man. Alexander uh, Strauch in his book, Biblical Eldership, he puts it like this. The phrase prohibits all deviation from faithful monogamous marriage. Thus it would prohibit an elder from polygamy, concubinage, homosexuality, and or any questionable sexual relationship. Positively, scripture says the candidate for eldership must be a one-woman man, meaning that he has an exclusive relationship with one woman. Such a man is above reproach in his sexual or marital life. And certainly where does so often Satan attack the church? Right here. And so it's important that you pray for your leaders and for their marriages. Next is is being sober-minded. The idea here is clear-headed, having good judgment, not drunk with the world. The scripture often talks about being vigilant and being watchful and sober-minded and those concepts go hand in hand. The idea is that you recognize you're in a war and, and you're, you're not asleep at the wheel and you're watching out for, for wolves that can come in among you. You're sober-minded in your thinking. And then the idea of self-controlled and the idea here is not being impulsive you're discreet, you're chaste, you're modest. You do things in moderation, not excessive, pure. You're a master of your, your appetites, and you're not ruled by fear, lust, or anger that would cause you to do great harm to yourself or to the body of Christ. The next quality character, characteristic is respectable, and the idea here is good habits. It's not all fun and games, but you have respect for this person and they have a respect for the word of God and for the church. And then this idea of they must be hospitable. And the, the idea here is that so often back, back then the burden would end up falling on the pastor to provide the hospitality for itinerant preachers or missionaries. And back then, I don't think they had Airbnb. I, don't, I just don't think they had that. They didn't have the Marriott. They didn't have, you know, all these different opportunities that they could just surf the internet and book a room, and when you get there, be there, okay? So the roadside inns were iffy and sometimes hard to find. And so the church was actually called to chase hospitality, pursue hospitality, chase after it, strenuous pursuit, run after hospitality, because we're in a culture that is running the total opposite way from that. And we're called to pursue this. And then it even says, show hospitality in Hebrews to strangers. Boy, that's an interesting concept. And Ben, you're doing that today. You guys are opening your house to strangers, people you don't even know yet. Come on over, opening your home. That's a wonderful example for us as a church. And I would say to us as a church, when the church grew the most in the period that I've been here, was one particular elder, his daughter's here, one of our interns, one particular elder in the church, he would open up his house every Sunday, and he would just invite people over. And people would come, and they would get plugged into the church. And the church grew. And I think much of it was the hospitality that was a hub springing from this family. That's important, and that's something we need to give attention to. So an elder must be willing to open his home, able to teach, This is, I've already kind of commented on and referred to this, but the idea here is that in Titus, Paul warns against, he says, he must be firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silent since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So these people were making money off of this and they were dividing churches. And so it is important that elders are apt to teach. Now we make a distinction in, the, in our particular church between ruling elders and teaching elders and we get that from 1 Timothy 5.17 but it's a little bit of a reach but the idea is that those who rule well or labor in word and, and, and doctrine they're to be compensated for it and so we have teaching elders that are typically paid position and ruling elders that are lay elders uh, in our church. The next one is that he's not to be a drunkard. His drinking habits should be examined. He's not given to drunkenness. The idea is you can't be mastered by alcohol; he cannot be getting drunk. There are four different views on alcohol. I've mentioned this before, but you have kind of a, a scale here from prohibition to abstention to moderation to drunkenness. Well, the the M ones are instantly unbiblical. To be a prohibitionist means that alcohol, in and of itself, is evil. Well, Jesus turned water into wine in his first wedding. And as we're going to come to communion, he did communion with wine. And it was not grape juice. There was a Greek word for that, and that's not the word that was used. And so prohibition can't, it has to be ruled out. The last one, though, of course, drunkenness has to be ruled out because that's certainly condemned uh, in the Bible. So that leaves two positions, abstention and moderation. Some folks choose abstention because alcohol's been a vice to them. It's been a stumbling block. And we all have an Achilles heel as Christians. There's areas where we are weak. And if that's your area where you are weak, then you need to abstain. And others, it it conjures up images from the past or connects them to uh, worldliness of things that they used to run with and, and God saved them from that. Others choose to, to, for, to be abstainers from alcohol because alcoholism runs in their family. And they see, a, they see a link with that. I see you nodding your head. You've seen this happen before. So people just say, you know what? I shouldn't even be messing with that. That's a, that's a good place to take. John the Baptist was an abstentionist and Jesus was a moderationist. And those are two biblical positions and you shouldn't condemn or look down on John the Baptist or Jesus because they're pretty good people, are they not? And so... God gives good gifts, but we're not to make an idol of his gifts. Psalm 104.15 refers to wine that gladdens the heart of man. And Paul told Timothy to drink some wine with his stomach ailment. And Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with wine. So certainly Jesus sees wine redemptively. And so wherever you land on that, you can't land at prohibition or drunkenness. And you have to be clear-minded, sober-minded, and not a drunkard. Then we go on to the next one, which is not violent. The idea here is, is, is literally not macho. And the word for macho is the idea of a brawler or a striker. And does he have a chip on his shoulder? Does he wear his feelings on his sleeve? And is he heavy handed? And does he actually threaten you know, his parishioners or threaten the, la- the laity? Uh, not so. And sometimes we can be brawlers or, or strikers with our words but we're called to be gentle. This is one of the qualities that is to be gentle, not harsh, not mean-spirited, tender. Our words are to be helpful, not hurtful to others. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is our call to worship, for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. And so gentleness is not optional depending on your personality type. I've had people tell me that before. You know, they say, well, well, I'm a type A personality. I just kinda like tell it what it is. And it means you know, they just kinda like pull a machine gun out with their words and mow everybody down and say, well, I'm a type A personality. Well, Jesus didn't say and Paul didn't say, well, this is optional it, it, except for if you're a type A personality or you haven't had lunch or you drank too much coffee or you're in a hurry. Does your driving and the way that you use your horn and your fingers, does that demonstrate that you are gentle. We laugh, but we shouldn't be playing around with that. We have no excuse to be rude. We have no excuse to be harsh. Shepherds are to be gentle. We're not to be quarrelsome. And the idea here is that not, not taking part in a battle. We're disinclined to fight. We're peaceful. We're not contentious. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 that we're to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they only breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be gentle or kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And then they're not to be a lover of money. We demonstrate where our priorities are. Are they, are they here on this world, or are they on the world to come? This lifestyle shouldn't, reflect an excess love of, of luxury or just even a, you know living there in the, in the world of luxury. Matthew Henry said, covetousness is bad in any, but it's the worst in a minister whose calling, calling leads him to converse so much with another world. And so the idea here is that whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you're not to be a lover of money and recognizing that it's a root of all evils and so money is a, is a good servant. It's a bad master. And then the dignity of good leadership in the home. There's some sobering things here about he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Wow. The idea here is that the world would say, you know, just look and see if he's a successful businessman or how how high has he climbed in his rank in the military or is he an incredible manager and leader at work or he's a great coach of the football team or the basketball team. None of that counts, Paul says. Paul says, look at the home, look at the home. And he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He must govern or lead his family well. And I think the idea here with this in the Titus passage is to say his children must be faithful I don't think it's, to render it believing children, I think the idea is that only only God can save your children. And to say you must have believing children seems to make you the parent ultimate rather than proximate in bringing about your child's salvation. But the children of elders should be submissive children and not wild and rebellious. And so children must not bring scandal on the church or the elder's family, but should be controllable. Those are sobering words. And then, um, then he goes on and says they must not be a recent convert. And the idea here is a neophyte, newly planted. If they're newly planted in Jesus, well, this new plant needs to grow for a while. And if we exalt somebody too quickly and we put them into positions where they're, it says what? They're gonna be tempted with pride. And so he's warning against that. And so in conclusion, I just want to remind us as a church what we need to be praying about and thinking about. Every minister, every member is a priest and every member is a a minister. But not every sheep is a shepherd and God would have the, the shepherds to give an account for the flock, and that's a sobering responsibility. He says in Acts 20:28, 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And so as the members of the church, how should we treat our, our elders? Well, we should pray for them we're called to, the Bible says, to obey your leaders, submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who'll have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that be of no advantage to you. And then First Thessalonians 5 says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, give each of us wisdom and discernment. We pray that you would call forth more leaders for your church. And Father, we pray that you would keep our church from scandal and keep the churches in the community from scandal and your church around the world. We pray that more and more we'd live in accord with this word. We thank you now for the privilege to come to your table. We thank you that we are marked out people. And thank you that we've been welcomed to your table. Feed us now with yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.